Aftershock, Everest and the Nepal earthquake, earthquake, Everest and the, and Everest and the, bleh. it's another week. Yay. <laughs> It's another week, which means another episode of Streamed and Screened, the podcast from Lee Enterprises, all about movies and streaming stuff. And, uh, and this week, we're talking about documentaries. I am Chris Lay. I'm the podcast operations manager for Lee Enterprises and the co-host of the show here with Bruce Miller, editor of the Sioux City Journal out of Sioux City, Iowa, and longtime entertainment reporter who just yesterday had a whole bunch of interviews, one of which yesterday was with Ryan White the director of Goodnight Oppie, the documentary about opportunity? Opportunity and spirit, which are the uh, Mars rovers. And you go, oh God, who would want to see something like that? You know, it's like, it strikes you. And then they tell you, you know, oh, they're going to interview a bunch of scientists. Oh, nerd city. This sounds great. I could really, I'm going to enjoy this one. Sure. But you watch it and it is very much, a documentary look at at something that could be easily related to ET. You could say there was an ET element to this. Um, you can see how Wally emerged from something like this, but it's it's tracking how those scientists watch these rovers for 15 years and what they learned from all that and how they actually became very close to these these machines and what that did for them. Uh, it's yeah. fascinating to hear them tell their story and then also to see, um, you know, how it plays out, what happened. And there's a whole bunch of music in there that's fun to listen to. But yeah, I got to talk to Ryan White and he was very uh, fascinating about, about how he did it because he did not, he wasn't there the first day that they started tracking all of this. He came in late and he had to play catch up. Cause that was a long time ago. And one of the, the more interesting sort of non-scientific, I guess, aspects of the Opportunity Project was that it was originally only supposed to last a handful of months, I think. And the the rovers kept going. And it was almost like they had a will to live or they felt they had a, a mission that they had to accomplish. Now, this is like we're putting, uh, making a cartoon seem real. That's what it seemed like. Real big time anthropomorphization. Right, right. You know, the film uses some special effects to kind of give you a feeling of what it looked like them moving around on Mars. They did not have that kind of footage available, but you get a real sense of what was going on up there. I don't know that I could spend that many years just every day watch, waking the machines up and then watching what they did, but they get very excited. And then you realize the connections that are made with all of this. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. And you do get choked up. It's one of those documentaries you go, oh, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get really, really teary about some old machine that's run its course. But you do. And when you find out what happens in the end, it's it's remarkable. A few years ago was the, the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing. And I mean, working in a newspaper, there were all of these packages that went out all about that. People were repackaging the history stuff of you know, that was coming out of there and me working in the archives at the Wisconsin State Journal at the time, you know, I was pulling up the A1 pages out of the microfilm to look at everything that was going on around that. And it was just, it was so fascinating. And the, that was maybe one of the last times that we, as a, as a planet all, I think really appreciated 
the tremendous leaps that we as a as a species have made technologically and the way that we've reached out there. And I mean, I remember being astonished by all of the Mars Rover stuff, but it's gotten to the point now where I, I certainly take it for granted. And I'm looking forward to seeing this. It's in theaters now, a few different places. It'll move on to Amazon. On the 23rd. Yeah. So it'll be your little Thanksgiving surprise if you want to wait. But do watch it because I think it's interesting. And it is one of those ones that will be in the hunt this year for best documentary. It has enough buzz and enough background. And it's different enough. And science has been a, an area lately that, you know, they've been interested in. My Octopus Teacher was a big documentary. And that, I think documentary filmmaking has become kind of the new entry level or the gateway drug, if you will, for a lot of filmmakers to get into the business because you can devote time to a subject. It can be a small subject and you can get your hands around it. And then you have something to show people what you're able to do. What's interesting about documentaries is they never really know how the story is gonna turn out. You can't write the story beforehand. You just have to let it hope that it's going to turn out and let it just kind of play its course. You know, some of the, the greatest documentaries ever made are partly about the the long investment. You look at something like Hoop Dreams, which is, you know, I, I'm pretty sure it's in the, you know, the National Registry of Film, whatever. The, you know, it's one of the greatest ever. And it's, that could have been, you know, nothing. Or it could have been, you know, you just you just keep filming and then you, you have to edit all that down. And, and, and I mean, you mentioned um, My Octopus Teacher, which was a Netflix thing. And Netflix has really changed the game on a lot of documentaries. I mean, they've won, they won with My Octopus Teacher and they won with the, um, what was the, the one about the doping in biking? Icarus. Icarus. The, the thing that's kind of a, a crapshoot is when they do follow something that has an ending. Like if you, let's say you're following a uh, basketball team, are they going to win in the end? Will that be a positive story? What, you know, what's the, um, what's the upshot of this? Just the last year, the, the short film Queen of Basketball was done for the New York Times. And it, I think they started out as a Title IX kind of look back. And then they realized that there, here's this woman who had the opportunity to be in the NBA, could have been the first woman basketball player who made a difference and then decided not to do it and what happened to her and what her life was like and what she valued it is fascinating. But, you know, too often people think you have to have your path marked out before you start walking on it. Yeah. And really with documentaries, it could shift, it could turn, it could be a whole different thing than what you absolutely thought it would be. Even, even in some instances where a large base of people know the outcomes, like I'm thinking of the the Chicago Bulls documentary series that was on ESPN a couple of years ago. There's a lot of people that kind of came into that not necessarily knowing how that panned out. And to actually, or I mean, I remember I've heard uh, you know anecdotal evidence of people you know talking about they were watching it and their their spouse or friends or whatever were also watching it and they didn't know how it was going to go and they got wrapped wrapped up in all the drama and is it going to be like a, you know, Rocky 
<laughs> situation? Right. Is it going to be something where it, you know, it doesn't, you know, play out that way? And which I mean, also that's on Netflix. And also, I mean, the the Redeem team is a really great documentary in, in a similar vein, um, much more concise, digestible by comparison. Now, this year, there's a, a documentary about Sidney Poitier. And you know where that story goes. You know what's going to happen. But there are things in the course of it that you go, oh, I didn't realize that. I didn't, re you know, at one time he was considered the real breakthrough artist, the first black artist to win a best actor Oscar. And he could do no wrong. And everybody saw him as the man. He was the one to follow. And in the documentary, you find out that there was a time when the black community said, you know, mm, I think you're a sellout, Sydney. I don't think you are this guy. And you're, you know, really the white person's idea of what a black person should be. And he had a very difficult time there trying to convince them that, wait a minute, I am me. I am Sydney. I am not a, a symbol for anybody. I am not, I realize that I am a role model but I should be judged on my own. And he had to do different things to try and get that back. He also had a, a really close friendship with Harry Belafonte and it went sour at one point and you find out why and what happened there and how they came back together. And those are fascinating things that I didn't think I was gonna get. I thought it was gonna be kind of the same old, same old. Um, and then there's the one that uh, the, the documentary about um, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. The, is it called the last movie stars or the last sounds stars? right another like it's uh, an hbo one right and ethan hawk looked at their looked at their past and found these these kind of recordings uh transcripts whatever you might want to call it that paul was going to do a story about their life and he didn't have any you know he didn't record his voice reading it so they had to put other actors in to be the voices of. And fascinating approach to telling a story that we thought we all knew. So that's what we're seeing is a, just a, a shift of things. Yeah. You know? And both of those with the, the Sidney Poitier one is it's really well done because I mean, it's it's the the talking head stuff, but the archival elements there where partly because it was clearly done with the participation of the, you know, Sidney Poitier's family. You know, they had access to all of this, you know, personal collections and he's very much a part of it. Yeah, he talks a lot, tells a lot of the stories, but then you see how the stories played out and how they affected other people. Oprah, who's a producer, which I I take, you know, a little bit of like, oh, wait a minute, should you be a talking head in a thing that you're producing? But she does have points to make you know, that he was the first time she had seen anybody that she could look up to in that respect in the, in the entertainment business. And um, he became her role model and how she reacted to him when she actually did meet him. And when she got to the point where, you know, he's now a friend. Um, it, it's fascinating to see how it affects different people and all that civil rights movement era and what role he played in all of that it's it's much better than you think just looking at it on the surface you think oh it's another celebrity thing i don't need another celebrity documentary yeah but i, I think it's a good one and i think it's because they do have buy-in i mean look they have robert redford talking about them they have barbara streisand talking about them you don't get bigger than that and they don't say yes to everything 
again, another one that will be in the hunt this year. Like we were saying about Netflix, and I mean, there's Netflix isn't the only company that's doing this, and I'm not necessarily knocking the the genre that I'm about to talk about, but the 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 true crime expose series. Hulu has a bunch of these. Uh, HBO has has obviously done a bunch. Um, and they're, you know, m- maybe varying degrees of exploitative. Per well, it's se. like Dateline. It's like Dateline. It you is. Know, it, it's a, like a, a a glossy a glossy magazine version of Dateline. And Whereas, you say we don't have to pay anybody. We don't have to get any rights because all of this stuff could be mentioned in some medium of some sort. We've got the newspaper clips, we've got the interviews, we've got the whatever, but we just uh, bring it all together and there we are. And those are cheap and cheesy, I think, but it does really help push to the concept of documentary films. It does. And I mean, it keeps those people in, in business, you know, And, and there are, there are certainly the, I mean, Errol Morris has done some of some things along those lines as well that could be seen like that. I'm thinking of Wormwood, the series he did for Netflix. And that's one where, I mean, just simply because it's Errol Morris, someone who has reshaped the genre of true crime and documentaries many times over. And I don't know, elevated is such a an overused word at this point, but he contemplates and you know, conceives of these documentary projects on on a completely different level than than you know the the majority of other filmmakers out there working doing the same kind of stuff or treading the same kind of territory uh, subject wise that that he is with uh, Wormwood and um, Tabloid and so. But look at yeah, you know, podcasts didn't really take off off until. They started doing these kinds of stories, Dear John, you know, and people got, oh, this is kind of fascinating. Well, then you just transfer it to another medium. We've got another project going and it's probably the same thing. You know, some of those those concepts have been reused so many times. The Eileen Wernos story um, has been told so many times over as TV projects, as a film, as a documentary. I mean, there's so many takes on it. And I'm sure there's a podcast out there about it as well. Oh, and it's multiple, I'm sure. They sell, they get an audience. So as a result, you're probably going to see more people watching that than you will an octopus. That's the way it is. But I think this year is a real fascinating year. Um, I belong to a group called the uh, Critics' Choice, and they have documentary film awards this year that really scan the, uh, the or span the, the, um, gamut of topics. I mean, things that you go, whoa, is this really something you guys are going to dig into? Something as simple as the Automat, which is about, you remember those kind of uh, diner-like places where they would put the food in a machine, you put the money in, it's like, our, it's like your machines at work. And that was a huge, huge thing back in the 50s and beyond. And um, there's, a, there's a documentary about that. Would you think of that? I don't know. Did you watch the the Everest earthquake documentary series that's on that came out on Netflix a little bit ago called Aftershock Everest and the Nepal earthquake? It's on Netflix. It's a I think it's like three or four 
episodes and they so it's a series not not a film necessarily but it's looking at the earthquake that hit nepal from the point of view of people that are in the process of climbing everest and located in the base camp it's guys that are hiking nearby and the actual city of nepal and the footage that they got from all of these places, because these are all things that are pretty well visually documented. That's, this is another example of, you know, one of the elements that you have to have to make a documentary that really pops and validates its presence, something that couldn't be done as a, a long form magazine article or a, a book or, you know, something like that is this footage that you're not going to get anywhere else and to have it packaged in a way that ends up being greater than the sum of its parts. Free Solo, a real good example of that. Would you imagine that a filmmaker would climb up and do what the guy is doing just to be able to get the shot? I would think that would be more difficult than doing the climbing because you're carrying all of your equipment with you and you're trying to get a good shot and you're trying to make your subject look good, Yeah, you know? impossible and and you also have to stay out of their way yeah i mean you you don't you don't want to be yeah yeah they don't need to rescue you aftershock is the name of another documentary this year about maternal health care um and that's on hulu and that's considered one of the ones to watch as well so i mean it's just it's it's so wide-ranging the I, i think i talked a few weeks ago about hockey land and Hockey land, you know, is one of those things. What do we do during COVID? <laughs> and so they they really, you know, leaned in on a uh, a couple of teams before all this happened, before we were sent away, and then used the COVID time to edit the film and put it together. Fascinating. And then mm-hmm. it comes out now, and there's enough time elapsed so you don't remember who actually did win that. Who was the big team? But it told so much more about who we are and what we are. Um, Last year's Oscar winner, Summer of Soul, done by Questlove, was just, you know, finding footage and putting it together and telling a story that maybe people didn't know. That falls into the category of just having all of this footage that tells a story that has disappeared, you know? I mean, and and again, to just kind of to put it together in a way that is the, the sum of its parts or bigger put it together in a way that is bigger than the sum of its parts. Um, and it's, you know, when you hear of, of music festivals, you think of Woodstock, right? That's it. And here we learn, oh, no, 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 no. Here's something else that has meaning. And this is something that you should pay attention to. Or it's Woodstock or the other one that is kind of the flip is Wattstacks, which is the, you know, the 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 black equivalent to the, the white, <laughs> the overwhelming whiteness that was, uh, Woodstock 69. And then this this is a whole additional uh, element to that. There's another one that's coming out, or it's been in theaters, but it'll be on Disney Plus at some point later in this year. And it's one that I'm assuming is going to be in the hunt for a documentary Oscar as well. And it's from National Geographic, and it's called Fire of Love. About the couple. They're yeah, about the, the couple who are volcanologists. So they they study volcanoes. I'm pretty sure that it's volcanologists. Um, and, and they study volcanoes and which uh, similar to free solo is a sort of, uh, a very psychotic profession. Like you have to be mentally unhinged and, 
very, very single-minded and, and, you know, fixation uh, orient. I mean, there's, there's a level of, of obsession that goes beyond, but that's another one that ha- looks like it has, it tells a story that very little known is very human at its core and is, is loaded with gorgeous footage that you're not going to see anywhere else. Well, and those kind of documentaries, if you get in early enough, like Free Solo, the end could be death. That yeah. could be the end of your documentary. Or do you, you know, what do you do? And that I did get to talk to the people who made Free Solo. And I said, you know, where does this, if he did die, what do you do? And they had contingency plans, you know, all right, we, we don't want to get rid of the footage that we've done, but you don't want to have a big old splat as the end of your film. So they had to kind of consider that, but hope to God that it wasn't going to turn out that way. Yeah. Now the I mean, volcano thing, it's an interesting one to watch. I, that's as much as I can say. Yeah. I think, I don't know how much of the, I haven't seen it. So I, I don't know, but the speaking about free solo and them having contingency plans, it's sort of a, it's like grizzly man a little bit where Werner Herzog had the the footage of a guy who went out and lived with bears for a long time and thought that he had tamed them to to a certain point or at least that he had earned earned their respect and it turns out that, that is not the case yeah. in the slightest and, and mother nature is fickle i guess we'll, every we'll time Jane, every time jane goodall does a documentary you think oh this is the last one she's not doing anymore yeah. man on wire do you remember that one where the guy was walking across the from the building yeah, yeah. and you think that could have ended up not so positive you know that man on wire directed by james marsh who he did a, a documentary called wisconsin death trip which was covering a bunch of i want to say it was black river falls in in wisconsin um and it was matching newspaper clippings from the area with images that had been preserved in the wisconsin historical society and i've actually handled some of those glass plates um from black river falls uh and yeah just astonishing imagery from from you know turn of the century midwest uh you know real far up middle of nowhere just total frontier uh craziness but well you look at all the stuff that ken burns does and most of it if it isn't a talking head it's old pictures that he's been able to make interesting you know, he might be zooming in on one, he might be pulling out on another, but he's able to tell a story in a way that's more fascinating than you ever thought possible. But he hit on a on a technique that works for him. And Ken I'm Burns sure, effect. Yeah, if anybody else tried to do it, they'd say, oh, well, you're just copying Ken Burns. So that's the other thing is finding your, your language in terms of how are you gonna tell this story? What are you gonna use? Are you gonna use animation because you don't have something else? Are you going to use archival footage? Are you going to use photographs? Are you just using, and I always am curious about the talking heads. How do you pick the people that you have commenting on these things? Are they the best possible source or are they the best available source, you know? One thing that you, mentioned was the with ken burns and with the the style that people get pegged with uh errol morris is another one um 
the the Maisels, maybe to a to a certain degree, you know, these these innovators. Uh, and it's easy to lampoon those. And I know that you've seen some of the the current season of documentary, documentary now. now. Yeah. Which since we're talking about documentary, we could we might as well end on this before we before we pitch out there. But what do do you have a favorite that, that you've seen so far of that? Of the new season or mm-hmm. of the old the old stuff, I really love the one that was doing company. You know, they were kind of uh, doing a, a parody of of company. They, they did a, a documentary about making the the uh, Broadway cast album of company. The Sondheim play, right? Right. So, uh, Elaine Stritch couldn't get it right. And she was like, oh, she, she was just the struggler of the whole thing. And in the documentary now one, and I can't think of the, the title they gave it. Co-op. Co-op, but it has a subtitle to it, too. Original cast album, colon, co-op. Right. And they have, uh, I think it's Paula Pell plays the character where she is just, uh, she can't get it. She can't get it. And you think, oh my God, they captured the style. They even use the same kind of cameras to shoot it as they did on um, the actual documentary. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting that this parody would go that far as to try and make sure that it looks exactly like the thing that they think was so great. And the the filmmakers apparently do enjoy the idea that, you know, finally somebody is looking that they have a sense of style and um, they enjoy watching these parodies. Sometimes they go a little far afield. Um, there's a My Octopus Teacher one that was this year is like my monkey something and it's, you know, yeah, okay, I get it. I see what you're doing here. But there are fascinating ones that make you want to go back and look at the original documentary that inspired it. Because you think, this is so bizarre. Is it really like this? And then you see the the plot points that actually do congeal. Yeah. I will say the the pilot episode of this series, Documentary Now, Sandy Passage, which is a, it's a riff on Grey Gardens and... It is maybe one of the most solid pilots ever made in that documentary now as a concept is such a heady thing. But to sit to right up right out of the gate, be like, we're going to do Grey Gardens, but in the middle of it, have it turn into a found footage horror film (laughs) is I mean, but to nail every element of that from all of the the references to the silliness to the actual, uh, you know, stylistic flourishes that both the documentary as well as found footage horror stuff play on and have it all come together. I mean, it's it's just this, this insane alchemy that is I still don't think that they've really beaten. I think that they've gotten close. They've maybe tied it, but and especially just. Again, just as a first thing to watch, you're just like, oh, I get what this is going to be this entire series. And it's just fantastic. So, yeah. It's almost like the smart guys SNL. (laughs) And, you know, where they can, you go, okay, if you've seen a few of these things, you'll get what we're going for. And you'll maybe get a better laugh than what we would try to get you to do or to laugh at in SNL. And so I, I, it's a nice little kind of graduation for all of them. And maybe it's their graduate program, who knows, but it doesn't need a big audience, but I bet it has a fairly substantial um, uh, loyal audience. Mm-hmm. 
documentary now is it's on IFC all of season four uh, or the first couple episodes of, of season four are out uh, on, on IFC and you can get that, you know, streaming, whatever, but it's also, I think the first couple of seasons are maybe on Netflix. Anyway, we'll have links in, in the show notes where you can catch that and everything else that we've talked about. Uh, so make sure that you check those out. Um, Bruce, what, Let's give one more little little push for the um, the interview that you've got with Ryan White, and um, we'll throw to that, and then we'll, we'll wrap up, man. Yeah, well, Ryan, um, you know, he has a number of good credits to his his resume, but this is one that I think is going to push him over the edge, and you're going to hear the name more often because uh, he's involved with Amblin, Steven Spielberg's company. And that says they're really willing to do these kinds of things. Ron Howard's company is another one that gets behind a lot of documentaries. And it's kind of like a feeder program for their directors, where you see them moving on from this to something else. And he talks all about how he got involved, what he learned. And there is this thing where every morning they would have wake-up songs for the, the rovers. And the scientists would figure out what's the song going to be? What is the song of the day? And we talk a bit about those songs and what that means and how they pick them. And I worried about, you know, when you do a show like this, there's always a rights problem. Hmm. If you want to have the Beatles on your soundtrack, good damn luck, because <laughs> the Beatles don't just give their music to everybody. But he talks in here about that music situation and what also if the Beatles are the number one hardest group to get, what the number two hardest group is to get. I bet it's Led Zeppelin. No, no. Now I want to keep guessing. Well, no, you just listen to the interview and you'll hear. Okay. Everybody should play the game with us where you write down who you think it is. And then you'll find out. <laughs> you'll find out what the number two. But yeah, it's fascinating to see how that. And when you watch the documentary, there's one last song that they play for Oppie. And if that doesn't get you, nothing will. But anyway, Good Night Oppie. It's an, uh, a, one of those documentaries that you will hear about. So often during the year, documentaries don't get any attention. And lately we've been seeing that they there are one or two that get a push. I think this is one, and I think you'll see it in the run for best documentary feature uh, in the Oscars. Yeah, and Good Night Oppie is in theaters. Select theaters, I guess, as they say in the biz, it hits Amazon on on the 23rd, but I'm probably going to try to see it at theater if I can, because I would imagine the the footage that Oppie and, and the other rovers got and the just the, the images on a huge screen are going to knock you down. The ones that they were created for the film, because, you know, some of the stuff they couldn't use. Um, and look at they're dealing with NASA. Good God. Are they going to turn over everything they've got to a filmmaker? You know, good luck. But yeah, you'll see the the ILM where uh, Industrial Light and Magic did some of the visuals for them so that you could experience what it was like to be a rover on Mars and what they might have seen. Well, here is Bruce Miller in conversation with Ryan White the director of Goodnight Oppie. Tell me, at what point did you come into this story? Had, had it been going for quite a while or? Because, I, uh, you know, where do you get 
you tell these people start taking footage of everything we need it where was yeah. your, your place in it well i didn't i didn't begin my film until after opportunity had died so um in 2019 this tweet went viral and it was um opportunity's last communication with earth and it went viral i think because it was like a global gut punch to people that this little robot phone millions of miles away was in trouble um and i'm a huge space enthusiast so i was following the mission and i remember that happening um and then she died a few months later um and that's when we began the film so nasa had been documenting her entire mission all the way back to the late 90s when she was just you know an idea in someone's head all the way through her death in 2019 but uh they had almost a thousand hours of footage that they wow. gave to us that we then used um to make the film yeah i would be freaked if i came in after it kind of had ended and then you go how do we get the footage from those early years you yeah know? Well, the idea from the beginning, you know, I partnered with Amblin Entertainment, which is Steven Spielberg's company, and the idea from the beginning was like if we're going to make a doc about this, let's let's take the audience to Mars. Um, you know, let's create a photo real Mars which had virtually never been done before and let's make the audience feel like they're there with these robots on this adventure. Um, and so we we partnered with Industrial Light Magic, which is George Lucas's company. Uh, to create that world. So even though her story had ended, we wanted it to unfold um in present tense, you know. And Angela Bassett in our film who reads what what are called the the Rover Diaries, those were play-by-play accounts that were written by NASA every day of what the robots were going through. And so uh, getting access to those really allowed us to keep the film in present tense. So we had the archive we had the visual effects on Mars and then we also had this diary which kept you in the moment so that you know i think most people will probably enter the film knowing the robot isn't alive anymore but we don't want we didn't want people to have that feeling spoiler alert right one yeah. of those things well how was it working with with special effects how you know because that's probably something you never ever do in a documentary and this is yeah I've done animation in my docs before but never visual effects to this scope for sure and I think I think it's I mean it was incredibly fun and it was incredibly as an artist it was incredibly freeing to have that that type of innovation you know this whole this whole mission this whole story was about innovation and technology and so I think to tell that story as a filmmaker we needed to bring that element of innovation to the film itself um so it was definitely a steep learning curve um but a very fun one and you know getting to work with the geniuses at Industrial Light Magic I'm actually in San Francisco right now because I have a screening with them tonight in their in their theater here um I was like a kid in a candy store getting to watch my vision come to life because all of these incredible artists at their computers creating you know all of that mars is not is not from their imaginations it's from it's based on the photography you know each of the robots had nine cameras um there's two orbiters above mars that take photos down on mars of the robots journeys So we had all of this photography and all of the data from Na- from from NASA like the weather on every day of a you know of a certain 
you know, whether it's opportunity getting stuck in quicksand, like we were able to go to those soul numbers and say like, okay, well, this was the level of dust in the air during those days. This was the temperature. This was the weather. ILM, here's all that information, light the scene in that way. Um, so although they're, they're, they're big visual effects, they are very rooted in facts and truth. And it's kind of like a documentary way of doing visual effects. So you have all of these kind of science nerds there at your disposal. How do you get them to be enthusiastic? You know, that wasn't very hard. Uh, I thought it was going to be hard. I thought it was going to be probably the biggest challenge. I think I just assumed that scientists and engineers would probably be unemotional, pretty detached people. Um, and once we started having conversations with these people, I think it was therapeutic for them in a lot of ways because the mission had just ended and they hadn't talked about it in a while. And, you know, they move on very fast. It's not like they, you know, it's not like getting the time to grieve a person where you can take some time off. They are, you know, many had already moved on to other missions, even while opportunity um, was still alive. And so I think having the opportunity to talk about this mission and her life and what it was like to work together was um, cathartic in a way for them. And so they all were just wearing their hearts on their sleeves in these conversations, which made my job a lot easier. Did you do the interviews and then write the script or did you, how did you craft it? We did, that's a good question. We did, no, we didn't do interviews on camera, but what we do in my world, we call them pre-interviews. Um, and we began the film in the, in the in March of 2020. So it was like the very beginning of COVID. So we couldn't, we couldn't interview these people on camera anyway, because it was COVID and NASA had very strict COVID protocols. Uh, so we didn't even begin our interviews until late 2020, but we did pre-interviews on Zoom um, with people. And we used those pre-interviews. I mean, they were hours long and we did almost four dozen of them. So it was a lot of people, it was a lot of hours. And it allowed, I watched all of those and used those to write the screenplay. And then like, because it takes years to do, to do visual effects, we needed to start the ball rolling even before we had done any interviews on camera. So how do you give Oppie and, and uh, Spirit the kind of personality that, I think comes across in all of this where you go, oh my God, they're a character. They're, yeah. you're, how do you do that? And how do you make sure that it isn't just, oh, it's just another machine we're dealing with? Yeah, I mean, I hope that they are characters, but we, you know, we weren't able to make them characters in the way you can make Wally a character, R2D2, because these are these are real things and they're very limited in what they actually do. You know, like they don't have a lot of mechanisms. You can't put eyebrows on them to show emotion or, um, so we were pretty limited in how we did that. You know, they don't, they have eyes, um, which are their cameras. So we, we really worked on using the mechanisms of the eyes and how they take pictures to be a, to be, a way of being expressive. Um, you know, their heads move up and down, they go to sleep, their head bows um, when they go to sleep or when their battery's running out. Um, but yeah, we had to really let the human beings be the ones that humanize them. And luckily they do. I mean, they totally saw these robots as having very distinct personalities, um, different people related with different ones, you know, opportunity was always kind of seen as like the A star student and 
and Spirit was seen more as like the rough and tumble, uh, blue collar rover. And I think people relate to one or the other or both. Um, but that's really where we were able to draw their personalities was the way that the the, the humans described them. How, how many songs were on the playlist? I mean, over the course of their missions, it's hundreds, if not thousands. Um, Did they repeat our, or were uh, they always different? I think they were always different. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there might've been a couple repeats and there were different songs for Spirit and Opportunity. So I don't know if there were repeats between the two of them because you know, the, the songs were always chosen because the the lyrics usually of the song or sometimes the title of the song was relevant to whatever the robot was going through. So there were thousands to choose from. You know, I think we have um, seven in the film uh, and it was incredibly hard to choose what those seven uh, would be because we had, you know, thousands of songs at our at our disposal to choose from. Were rights a problem? Do you say we can't use that song because we can't get the rights for it? Or was it? It's interesting because I had made a Beatles film before and I've gone through this process and I made that film almost 10 years ago. And at that time, the Beatles had virtually never been used in, in film or television, at least in, in, in many decades. Um, and we got permission for that that documentary, which was a little a little film about the Beatles secretary. Um, and so I knew how hard that was to get permission to use Beatles music. And our music supervisor on Goodnight Oppie said, like, just so you know, the second hardest band to license is ABBA, which was a key <laughs> song in our film as well. So we knew it was an uphill battle, but it, it's a, I mean, I'm sure my music supervisor would say it wasn't that easy, Ryan, but it, it was shockingly easy to line up all of these rights. I think it's very different when you're going to a record label and you're saying like, hey, we'd like to use your Beatles song as soundtrack. Um, you know, that's that that that's one thing. It's very different when you can go to a record label and say your band's song was used to wake up a robot on another planet or your song was used when a robot wasn't waking up because she was in crisis and people were mourning her. I think it makes people listen and it does something to people's hearts. Um, and I would imagine, I mean, all the bands said yes, we didn't get any no's. There's not like any songs that we were, we got a no to that we didn't, that we couldn't include in the film. And I think it's just something special about how their music was used. Yeah. Oh, it, it's, the music is a big part of your film. It, yeah. You know, and it really, it helps sells. Like I say, something that you go, oh, I'm not going to watch this. This is a bunch of nerds sitting around talking about, you know, a rover, please. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get so caught up in it that at the end, you don't want to say goodbye. Yeah. Was well, that a problem for you to say goodbye to this project and say, I'm done with it? Or do you go, mm. No, 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 no. It's always hard for me to separate from my projects. And you never really do. It's it's like, we always joke that they're like children that like won't ever leave home. Even my, even my first film, I still have to, you know, I'm a parent to sure. uh, all the time. And so, but yeah, it was, it's, it's always painful. I mean, my favorite movie um, as a little kid was E.T. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember when this idea was pitched to me from Amblin, having this conversation where like, it's such a similar narrative trajectory to E.T. You know, it's a film about wonder and awe, but it's also about the connection between a human and a non-human. And, you know, if if we do our jobs right, 
the audience will fall in love with this robot and that robot will have to be we'll have to we'll have to say goodbye to her at the end of the film just like um Elliot says goodbye to ET um and so we, I knew it was going to be a film full of hope but that it would also have um quite a sad ending um and finishing the film was like that too like having to say goodbye to a project I've never made a film that was so fun to work on that was so joyful and so full of heart you know as documentary filmmakers we're almost always covering very heavy subject matters you know that's 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 the types of stories that demand to be told you know is covering problems or things that need solutions and this one was just such a reprieve from um, my normal day-to-day -day job um, that it is it's it's hard to move on and know that I'm diving back into films that are really heavy and will not bring that type of joy day to day but are still you know important stories that need to be told did you talk to steven spielberg at all during the course of this or not yeah i mean not not on the phone um but we uh we, we uh I, we got notes from him um you know and he and he um we i mean we had two amblin executives named daryl frank and justin falvey and they're the execs on this film and they're the ones share the projects with Spielberg and um, the feedback that we got from him was was wonderful it was um, you know I think he's a director and he knows how to give notes to other directors and it wasn't it wasn't like uh, he gave notes near the end so it was more feedback on the film but he was very very pleased with it it, it made him cry he didn't say, it looks a little bit like my ET here you better watch <laughs> this right one of those things yeah well we we often get told that uh you know, our robots look like Wally, -E and, and NASA's very, very careful to remind everyone that they created these robots first Before. and Wally -E came second. So if anyone's based on, on anyone else, it's Wally -E was based on Oppie. That's right. And last question is, why did you pick Angela Bassett? Why was she the one to do the narration? Because I wanted, so like I said, we found those Rover diaries and they were written in present tense. And so, you know, I don't even call it narration, what Angela is doing in my film, because narration I see as, um, you know, telling the audience what's happening as sort of an omniscient third party um, um, objective voice. And Angela, I see as like, she's, she's playing a role and that role is the voice of NASA. These are actually, we didn't write, we didn't write her words. Those are words that NASA wrote every day. A human being would type that up at the end of every day. Um, and so I wanted an actor to play a role and Angela's was always the voice I had in my head, you know, for, for years when we were making this film, the voice that was in our rough cuts was our production assistant, James, he would read the Rover diaries and my editors would cut it in. And James has a really beautiful, provocative voice as well. Um, but eventually he was replaced with wow. Angela, no offense to James, uh, he was replaced with Angela and, um, getting to record with her was one of you know the best days of my filmmaking career. She's just such an incredible actor, so empathetic, which is what I wanted in her voice, something so um, maternal and um, like a caretaker. Um, and so we wanted that sort of tone, thing that's incredibly uh, sensitive and empathetic. And she just took the film to a whole other level once she once we got to layer in her voice. Well, it's like I say, it's one of those things that you think, oh, I'm not gonna like this at all. 
Yeah, and I keep hearing that. So I sorry to tell you that from the the get go, but once you watch it and you see the things that unfold, you become so caught up in their day to day activities that you think, I guess I could work at NASA and I could watch this all the time. Yeah, you know, oh, I, don't, I don't take any offense to that. I keep hearing that after film festivals. I, I actually find that the biggest compliment. Well, great. Good luck with it. I hope it's a huge huge hit for you. I think it's, it's it's one of those things that you don't see it as a documentary, you see it as a film. Yeah, well, I hope that, yeah, I hope through word of mouth it spreads in that way. Thank you for writing about it. I'll be loud. I'll be, okay. I'll be talking a lot, okay? Thank you, Bruce. Thank you so much. You. Have a great one. Take care. Thank you so much to to Ryan White for taking the time to talk to Bruce. And uh, thank you, Bruce, for taking the time to talk to me. And uh, yeah, thanks to me for taking the time to just to just keep on talking to people. Just keep on talking. That's what you got to do, because if you don't, you either have to stream something good or see something good. Absolutely. We'll have links to everything we talked about. And we talked about a whole lot in the show notes where you can stream them or screen them in the case of Goodnight Oppie. And, and again, Good Night Oppie comes out Amazon Prime on the 23rd of November. And uh, yeah, thank you guys so much. We'll be back next week with more good stuff. And I think what I'm going to do for the bonus episode this week is uh, in the can. I think we've got an archival episode that we did talking about documentaries uh, a couple years ago. When we, back when we were doing like top fives. Pull it out. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. Find us on all, all the podcast places and subscribe and review and like and tell your friends and etc. Thank you all so much. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Oh, Nerd City. This sounds great. I could really, I'm going to enjoy this one. Sure.